You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered. Listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Brandon Blewett. And I'm Robert Schull. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, December 4th, 2023. In today's feature report, local journalist Dave Askins with the B-Square Bulletin discusses the future of local news in his weekly segment on WFHB. More in today's feature report. We don't want them to feel like segregated or separate, but make them feel part of the whole community living in Bloomington. That's Jimena. Martinez, our city's Latino outreach coordinator. Learn more about efforts to engage Bloomington's growing Latino population later in the show on a new episode of Activate. But first, your daily headlines. During a legislative update hosted by the local chapter of the League of Women Voters, Local officials discussed policy priorities ahead of the Indiana General Assembly's upcoming session. Lawmakers had their sights set on a short legislative session in 2024 after passing a two-year budget in 2023. The session will begin in January and will continue through mid-March. District 40 State Senator Shelley Yoder outlined her priorities and elaborated on the format of the upcoming session. As I look to 2024, Some of my priorities are what I hear from you. And um, over the last couple of months, I have held town halls. And I was really curious because we have been limited to five bills. We can only file five bills. This is called a short session. And since joining the, the assembly in 2021, that was my first year, we were limited to the number of bills we could file due to COVID. And then the next year, we were limited because of COVID again. Last year, we were limited because of it was a budget year, and they knew we would be tackling a lot, so we were limited again. And now this year, we're limited to five. Um, and the reason is because it's a short session. So it, it does seem that there's, there's always a reason uh, to to limit constituents' uh, voices. That's, that is how it feels um, sitting in the legislature. It, it's gone from 15 now, and this session coming up, it's five. It is a short session, so our first uh, day when we're called back will be January 8th, I believe, and it will be fast. Um, we were told that we will not be opening up the budget for anything. Yoder explained that one of her priorities would be repealing Senate Bill 1, Indiana's abortion ban. She also touched on reforming the state's taxes on menstrual products. I was curious, given the five-bill limit, if filing a bill to repeal Senate Bill 1 would still be a priority. And I heard that loud and clear. Repealing Senate Bill 1 and uh, removing uh, the... For Indiana, it's become a total ban on abortion access, is what I am hearing from constituents, and that does not require the budget to be opened, uh, and it certainly would be a response to listening to what constituents throughout Indiana are saying. 
So that is one area that I will be focused on. And another which is similar, tied to it, but it is righting a wrong. And righting that wrong is, in the 60s when we passed a retail sales tax, uh, it, it was overlooked, misunderstood, and silent on devices that collect menstrual, uh, menstrual blood. And these products continue to be taxed. And we know that 80, over 80% 80 of Hoosiers have said they know someone or they themselves do not go to work, do not go to school, because they cannot afford these products. My bill and those who have gone before me, we have tried to right this wrong. It is not a luxury. This is essential for people who bleed every 28 days for about 20 to 30 years to pay a tax. And I think it... I am, I am not alone. Research shows us it's an issue of constitutionality and it is, it is wrong because it impacts only certain people. And it is time that Indiana joined the majority of states and stop taxing people for purchasing these products. My bill would be repealing this tax, ending it for good. This is not reopening it just to, you know, I guess to um, repeal something. It is reopening it to correct a wrong, and it's gone on for too long. So those are two areas I'm focused on and I have been focusing on, including, and in addition, child care, agrivoltaics, and consumer protections for utilities. And I'm excited to be here, and I look forward to hearing more from you. Representative Matt Pierce, who represents Indiana's 61st District, touched on the shorter nature of the new session. Pierce scrutinized the process, characterizing it as rushed. Major issues that the leaders of the legislature seem to be talking about is uh, readdressing how to ensure that kids reach reading proficiency by third grade. They seem to be most interested in kind of doubling down on uh, making sure we hold kids back um, from advancing to fourth grade if they don't have their reading proficiency. There's an interest in um, Reducing truancy uh, in our schools, making sure people are actually attending. Uh, Speaker Houston wants to make sure that I-65 and I-70 are three lanes all the way across the state. So I guess they're gonna do something on that. Um, a big issue, which I think will get raised, but probably won't get much action, is this whole issue about water and the LEAP district. Should the state be allowed to move water from one region to another for economic development projects? Um, just listening to the governor and the leaders, they're all saying, oh, it's just getting studied now, it's not a big deal. And I just think they desperately want to avoid a discussion about that issue in an election year with five gubernatorial candidates on the Republican side all um, fighting over things. So um, I think that there'll be some attempts to get some legislation passed there, but I don't think the leadership's gonna let it really move. Uh, from the Democrats, you'll be hearing a lot about referendums. We're gonna try very hard to see if we can get some legislation passed that would give um, the people the right to directly place issues on a ballot as we have seen in other states. Um, again, you can tell from the leadership's response to media questions about that, they're not very excited about the idea of referendums, so who knows how far um, that will get. And um, so, you know, that's it's interesting how, at least in the House, the leadership's really been stressing this is gonna be a short session, we're not gonna do anything you know, really controversial or bold, it's gonna be kind of about tweaking things from the past and just kinda of cleaning up stuff. So it may be a fairly uneventful session. During the question and answer portion of the town hall, Brown County School Board member Amy Oliver asked about school referendums. In Brown County, 
voters turned down a school referendum last year by only 333 votes. Oliver asked what the legislators would do in order to revise misleading language at the State House when it comes to ballot referendums. Yes, I'm here. Thank you for having me. Um, my name's Amy Oliver. I am a school board member in Brown County, and I'm glad that Representative Pierce sort of talked about referenda. Um, this is a related question um, about school referenda. Um, as you may know, in Brown County in last November, we lost a referendum in our county. Um, we're now in a position that we're going to have to replace well over a million dollars per year. And we're talking about doing a new referendum. Uh, we haven't decided what to do with that, but it has made me very much aware of the misleading language that the legislature requires on a referenda ballot. And it's just going to be my my personal cause for the next year and the, during the next session that I would really like to see it to be a priority to change the ballot language for school referendum. I know that um, Monroe County's had two in the last um in the last year. And I think that may have made people also aware how misleading the language is. So I'm just hoping that um, both of you can be um, advocates for that. Um, I know you only have five bills that you can propose, but I'm really hoping that um, this is an issue that can get some attention because the way the language is written, I, I think it's intentionally misleading and it just needs to be clear so that voters know exactly what's happening. So thank you. Representative Pierce responded saying he doesn't believe the Republican supermajority is interested in revising that language. Well, I can just say that uh, I know that issue got a lot of debate when they first moved the legislation that changed that language. The language that's now mandated makes it appear that the taxes will actually be higher than they actually are. And uh, I know in the House we tried to head off that language and improve it, and uh, we didn't have any success on that. And I haven't gotten the sense that the majority party is interested in revisiting that issue. I don't know what might be going on in the Senate with that, but um, that is a, an important issue to kind of keep on the list. And in the House, that's the kind of thing where if you have an education bill moving through this germane, you might be able to offer an amendment on the floor and see if you can convince a majority of the House to support it. State Senator Yoder added that she saw shortcomings of the state's budget passed earlier this year. She emphasized the importance of referendums when funding education initiatives in the state. Thank you, Amy, for that question. I would add to what Representative Pierce said, what I am hearing from school districts across Indiana and from constituents who are really engaged uh, with their public schools is this last session in the budget, uh, we, I mean, I, I pushed back. I, I did not think that the way that the language was written in the budget was going to be helpful for our school corporations, but uh, we, in the budget, claimed to cover all textbook fees in our budget and that the budget, the state budget, would be paying for those for families across Indiana for students. And that simply is not the case. Uh, and what has happened is it has put our school districts in a real bind because the amount that was allocated does not cover the expense of textbooks. And so then, School corporations are struggling because they can't, to, to send a bill to ask for help to pay for these, parents and families are saying, hold up, the legislature said that you are covering these fees. But in fact, it isn't. There is a gap 
and school corporations are having to fill that gap with funding. And so now more than ever, those um, referendums are going to be critical for the success of our public schools. Local resident Kathy Roundtree expressed frustration at the limited amount of bills each legislator is allowed to introduce. She also criticized the lack of public input available to be heard on bills introduced in the State House. Roundtree asked, who is responsible for this process? Pierce responded, saying that it's a part of the rules of the House and Senate. I was really um, stunned at the information about the limitation of the number of bills that you're allowed to present and the limitation of um, public comment on those bills. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Who's in control of those two issues? Thank you. Well, that, that is all contained in the rules of the House or the rules of the Senate, and those are adopted by each body um, on organization day right after the election. So you have election, you have all the new members are sworn in, the speaker's elected, and then the next thing you do is you adopt the rules. And so the majority party really controls which, um, you know, what the rules are going to say. Uh, in the House, we've had um, a bill limit I th it's probably for 20 years, um, and it was only uh, and originally for the short session because the theory of short sessions are supposed to only be about emergencies or pressing matters, and what was happening is people were introducing just as many bills in a short session as a long session, and about as many were being passed, and people began to say, we only got half the time to look at these, maybe this is not the best, and so I think it was the House was the first place they said, at least in the short session, we should have a limitation and then I think uh, at some point uh, later on down the road, then, then the House said, well, we should um, go ahead and have a limit for the long session. It'll be uh, more bills, but a limit nonetheless. And then I think the Senate eventually decided to follow along. The theory had always been, well, there are only half the number of people in the Senate. There's 50 over there. So how many bills can they come up with? But apparently they decided they need a limit over there too. So I'll let Shelley talk about whatever the Senate limits are. Representative Pierce pretty much summed it up. Uh, when I, I think in my opening remarks, I said it was a new, a new move uh, when they limited us in 2021, and that was because of COVID. And then this next, then the next year was because it was, I'm trying to remember, a budget year, or maybe it was a, a short session, and then last year they limited us because it was a budget year and we would be spending so much time on the budget, and then this year it's a, we need to get in and get out. It's a short session. Uh, we're going to limit it. But now it went from 15, and now we're at 5. So even in those three years, that's a sharp decline. All legislators who represent a portion of Monroe and Brown counties were invited to the town hall. Yoder and Pierce were the only legislators in attendance. To watch the full town hall, you can visit WFHB.org following this broadcast. The 2024 legislative session will officially kick off on January 8th of next year. In today's feature report, local journalist Dave Askins with the B-Square Bulletin discusses the future of local news in his weekly segment on WFHB. We turn to Askins for more.
The B-Square Bulletin sends out an emailed morning bulletin every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You can sign up for the morning bulletin by visiting bsquarebulletin.com and clicking on the tab labeled Subscribe. Here's an entry from a recent edition. Talking about the future of local news. On December 9th, from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m., the Monroe County History Center is hosting a panel discussion on the future of news. Serving on the panel will be Jim Roddenbush, who is the faculty director of the Indiana Daily Student, former Herald Times photographer Jeremy Hogan, who now operates the Bloomingtonian, and me, Dave Askins, the one person behind the B-Square. Former Herald Times editor Bob Zaltzberg will moderate. The panel discussion is supposed to last from 45 to 60 minutes, and after that, they will open it up for questions from the audience. I hope to see some of you there. Doing the future of local news. During the panel discussion on December 9th, I will probably try to spend most of my time talking about the digital tools I'm developing to try to build the future of local news. The basic concept is that news is just very recent history. So it's useful to think about history as the basis for reporting the news. The first tool is a feed-based community calendar that will include all of Bloomington's events. The idea is that every event host will maintain their own calendar, but those calendars will generate an internet-compliant feed which can be grabbed, collected, and displayed by any other digital calendar. Lots of organizations already maintain calendars that generate feeds. A prototype of a community calendar can be found under the Big Calendar tab on the B-Square's homepage. Where does history come in? Answer, we will archive all the past events. With no extra effort, we will have a timeline of everything that ever happened in Bloomington. The second tool is a public document repository. Check it out at bloomdocs.org. That's B-L-O-O-M-D-O-C-S dot org. That's a place where journalists, residents, or public officials can upload documents that are important to our civic life. Here's the future I imagine. Someone asks, does anybody have a copy of the deed restriction that might affect the sale of the police station? And somebody within earshot answers, well, have you checked bloomdocs.org? As it turns out, if you check bloomdocs.org right now, you will find a copy of that land record, which the county recorder's office provided to the B-Square. If you don't see it in the list, use the search box. The third tool is a comprehensive online encyclopedia, just for local information. If you head over to localwiki forward slash M-O-C-O-I-N, you'll see a couple of example pages that I have set up. For starters, there is a page that documents each year's edition of the Bloomington City Council back to the beginning of time. Ideally, these encyclopedia pages will be light on narrative, but heavy on historical facts. That's why I think the backbone of every encyclopedia page should be a timeline. There's an added benefit to this timeline-based approach. The work of writing a story is hard to share across people, but we're not writing stories. We are assembling facts. We're assembling facts by building timelines, and the burden of building a timeline is easy to distribute across lots of people 
by working on a wiki platform. The title page to a timeline I've started building over the past few days is Timeline, Bloomington Police Headquarters, 220 East 3rd Street. Help build the future of local news. Help by adding to the police station timeline. For one or two readers who are digital library nerds, probably all I need to do is point you to the local wiki and you will intuitively know what to do. But for most people, that will be a bit daunting. So here's a way simpler request. I promise you it will be worth the effort for its own sake. Visit the new 1943 to 2013 digital image archive for the Herald Times. The link can be found on the Monroe County Public Library's website at this URL, mcpl.info slash emagazines. When you land on the archive, you'll need to type in your MCPL user ID and password. If you are able to log into the database, do one search, and view one old-timey newspaper page, please declare victory. If you're up for another couple rounds, here's some specific questions you might try to answer with a search. What's the latest date that you can find for a reference to the Third Street Park? What's the earliest reference you can find to the Waldron Hill and Buskirk Park? When did the City Council approve the naming of the new police building at 3rd and Lincoln Streets after John F. Kennedy? When exactly was the decision made to use parkland to build a police station? What other questions can you ask and answer? Maybe that sounds like sheer drudgery. Well, I say it's up to you to make it fun. Find the front page that was published on the day you were born. Post the image to Facebook or your favorite social media outlet, and then brag about how old and wise you are. That's just one idea. I'm sure B-Square readers will come up with other ways to make some fun with these old newspaper archives. Until next week, this has been Dave Askins with the B-Square Bulletin for WFHB. Bloomington's Latino population is growing, and Jimena Martinez wants our Spanish-speaking neighbors to feel welcome in this community. Martinez is the Latino Outreach Coordinator for the City of Bloomington, which also makes her the producer of Hola Bloomington, our Spanish-language public affairs program airing Fridays at 6 p.m. She talks about that show and other ways to engage Hispanic community, on a new episode of Activate, coming your way right now on WFHB Local News. Welcome to Activate, featuring real people working for positive change in our community. Encouraging you to get involved, live your passion, and make a difference. My name is Jimena Martinez, and I'm the Latino Outreach Coordinator at the Community and Family Resources Department in the city of Bloomington. Actually, the Latino community is interesting because it has increased, like during the last two years, it has increased a lot, and we provide uh, information 
resources. We act as a liaison between the new families arriving here that they want to uh, get some information from different uh, agencies and, and community partners. So we are the, um, the liaison that, that provides this information. I think that the most important thing that we do for the Hispanic and Latino community is trying to integrate them into the community of Bloomington. We don't want them to feel like segregated or separate or, you know, as a different kind of community, but make them feel part of the whole community living in Bloomington. Let's start with La Fiesta del Otoño. La Fiesta del Otoño is the annual event that we plan, organize, coordinate at the Community and Family Resources Department. It's uh, held once a year and is during the National Hispanic Heritage Month. We provide information because we invite different uh, community partners and agencies, but also it's a recreational and fun event because we also invite different Latino bands, performers, artists, mariachi. This event has been going on in Bloomington for around like 20 years, but I think that the maximum number of people going to, to La Fiesta del Otoño on previous years was uh, 200 people at the most, and this year we had more than 400 people. Many, many of these families, they are not allowed to go back to their countries, like never, like no, for so many reasons. So bringing a little bit of their culture to Bloomington, I, I, I think that it makes them feel like, uh, you know, happy. And also for the people living here, it's also educational because they get to learn about these other cultures and how like can they like live together and mix and and everybody like could learn from each other also to the bulletin communitario this is our monthly newsletter is 100% in spanish all the articles written there they are done by the community members Please listen to our show, Ola Bloomington, is every Friday uh, starting at 6 p.m. from 6 to 7. And it's a live show. So we have uh, new shows every Friday uh, with different guests from uh, the Latino community or from the Latino, uh, from the community in, in Bloomington that wants to share stories or provide information in Spanish to our community. There are so many opportunities to volunteer at the Latino programs in the Community and Family Resources Department. La Fiesta del Otoño, they can come and they can volunteer helping us coordinating the event, uh, during the organization, set up, everything. Uh, also to the Boletín Comunitario, they can volunteer with uh, writing an article every month or submitting information. Very welcome. Ola Bloomington, they can also volunteer to come here as guests, as hosts. And there are some other ways to, to volunteer with us at uh, the Latino programs. Uh, for example, translation services as interpreters. So if you want to have more information uh, regarding the Latino programs and all the things that we do, uh, or you want to volunteer with us, you go to bloomington.in.gov slash Latino. It's very easy. bloomington.in.gov slash Latino. My name is Jimena Martinez. I'm the Latino Outreach Coordinator at the Community and Family Resources Department in the city of Bloomington. Construyamos comunidad juntos. You've been listening to Activate, true stories from friends and neighbors who stand up for what they believe in. Activate is a partnership between WFHB and the City of Bloomington Volunteer Network, working together to build a strong, healthy, and engaged community. 
with production support from students in the Media School at Indiana University. You can learn more about volunteer opportunities in the WFHB listening area online at bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org. That's bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 